please, we're going to welcome the next session around emerging markets in China, balancing the, the headwinds and, and tailwinds. Uh, I'm joined by uh, John Burkhold, Paul Christie, and Tim Bartho. Um, this is a, a really interesting segue from the last session as we sort of talked to the issues around central bank policy, um, talking about the deficits that sit behind a lot of the developing markets, um, and a lot of asset owners in, in the room need to think about um, growth and how to uh, um, look for potential growth. The emerging market environment is really an interesting one as we start to see the transformation of, of China. You're starting to see more and more transformation in, in East Asia in terms of development, manufacturing, um, Latin America, despite problems in, in uh, Argentina. And the other interesting piece is that the developed market has got a huge backdrop of, of debt that is propping up the market, and, and EM seems to offer a very unique um, angle in the sense that it doesn't have that overhang. So, as I mentioned, we've got John, uh, Tim, and Paul here, joined on stage. Uh, and we're just going to open it up in terms of a broader panel discussion in terms of the backdrop to, to emerging markets. Um, as we did in the last session, if you have a question, please push your push the talk mic, it lights up, becomes red, I'll call your table and we can introduce you. Um, please, uh, John, I guess maybe to kick off in terms of your perspective in, in emerging markets, um, one of the biggest questions that always seems to come around emerging markets is from a GDP perspective, always seem to do well as they're transitioning. You know, how does then that potentially um, filter back into actual market returns and, and performance? Well, I think one of the, the, the key things to understand is that um, GDP growth correlates very poorly with stock market returns. Uh, it's a simple sort of, uh, I guess, assessment of that would be over the last 10 years, the developed markets have underperformed emerging markets in terms of GDP by about 5% per annum. But the developed markets have outperformed the emerging markets, the stock markets, by about 5% per annum. So if it was all about GDP growth, then clearly something else is, something else is happening. And, and the short answer is very simple. It's about profitability. You can grow a business, but if you're growing a low-return business or a cost-of-capital business, you don't create any wealth. And um, obviously, the, the previous speakers, I think, uh, did a very nice job laying out the environment of the last 10 years. It's been a tremendous bull market. I think what isn't necessarily understood is that the average US company right now is as profitable as it's ever been. Historically, over the last 100 years, corporations earned about 6% real returns. Right now, the average U.S. company is earning closer to 12, whereas the average Japanese company continues to earn about three. And many emerging markets have historically grown for the sake of growth and haven't actually been profitable. Um, and so that's been really the disconnect. People are focusing on the growth and not on the profitability. Our approach is very much first and foremost driven by looking for high return businesses that are growing rather than growth for the sake of growth. I'll switch to Tim now in terms of just the broader backdrop to EM. And EM has, has evolved a lot in the last 10, 15 years, particularly as technology that was you know, predominant in developing markets now moved into EM. You've seen the transformation of China. Curious to, to get a bit of a background in terms of the evolution that you see in terms of attribution of the companies that sit in EM now, um, that, what that evolution has been. Yeah, so undoubtedly emerging markets 20 years ago compared to what they are today are somewhat different beast. Um, if you go back 20 years, the way emerging markets were defined was still, most indices had both an investable and a 
uninvestable index. Um, what we see today is much more the investable side is continued. But that by itself means that there are limitations to what actually ends up in an index. Um, and the characteristics of emerging markets changes quite rapidly through time as well. Because if you think about it, as these markets evolve, they get promoted beyond the emerging markets and therefore they leave bigger holes within the nature of the emerging markets. So over the last 20 years, you've seen particularly um, markets like uh, Poland, Hungary, South Africa, all those markets have moved up the scale. China has obviously come in and provide a very large component now of the emerging markets. It's up to you know, mid 30%. Mm -hmm. But you've also got to remember that, that in including China in the emerging markets, all the index providers took the stocks that were in Hong Kong, which were labeled as eight shares and red chips, and put, defined them as China. So what you've got is a very different type of emerging market index. And you go back again 10 years, um, and I remember investing in emerging markets longer ago than that, and really what you were buying were finance companies, cement companies, the occasion utility. And then you look at what's there today, and yes, finance is still a Im huge important part of that. But the nature of it has moved very much more in technology. So technology is the second biggest um, part of the emerging market after banking. But they're still very low in um, things like healthcare, consumer goods. But those are much highly valued in the emerging market space. And what you found is the things, the old industries like basic materials, oil and gas, are the things which are most undervalued. The interesting piece about the undervaluation, you know, undervaluing of stocks in EM, and it seems to have been this continual problem around the discounts for EM. You know, in, in terms of your background in, in looking at sort of the trade-off between price to book, for example, between EM and, and DM, is there at least a bit of a closing or is th that gap just stayed? Well, that gap has been relatively stable through time, but I think what so it really is a feature of the nature of the underlying assets and how they're valued on a PE basis. So if you look at the things which dominate, like the finance sector, um, some of the oil, gas, basic materials, typically emerging markets on a PE basis are significantly undervalued compared to a developed market basis. And because the bias in the emerging markets is more has is moving, but is still towards those, what you see is a undervaluation of emerging markets. Mm -hmm. But the reality is, if you reweighted emerging markets to a similar sector weights as you've got in developed market, that undervaluation on a PE basis disappears. And that has been static for the last 10 years. I'll transition to, to Paul. You know, in, in terms of being an asset allocator and, and EM, you've heard a couple of you know, issues there around sort of the GDP disconnect with valuations. Um, you've also then heard about sort of valuation, this sort of discount piece that seems to be in the puzzle. You know, how do you look at EM? You know, what, what's the philosophy around EM for IWF and how do you think about it um, with respect to those two issues? Yeah, so just some comments on the GDP and the, uh, the equity return link. I think I, I certainly agree with uh, with John in terms of there's a very tenuous relationship between uh, between the two, and I think that's certainly driven by two effects. Uh, one is that there is very uh, a big difference between the sector composition of the stock market and the and the overall economy, um, and then secondly, uh, stock issuance as well. That's been a massive. Um, there's been a massive increase in, in stock issuance uh, in emerging markets. So that's certainly 
diluted EPS growth. In terms of how we sort of look at uh, emerging markets, I mean, emerging markets uh, generate 60% uh, of uh, global growth. Their uh, global output share is uh, around 50%. So they're certainly having a massive impact in terms of its economic importance. Uh, we are of the view that uh, we're very um, 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 positive on EM. Uh, we've been um, holding a, a, an overweight to emerging markets. Um, and that uh, view has been based on the premise that, you know, you're buying diversification in terms of capital markets exposure, so lower equity and bond correlations, even though uh, they have increased over time through globalisation. Uh, you're getting diversification in terms of economic conditions, so lower correlations across growth, inflation, monetary policy, which is certainly a big, a big issue. Um, you, you're basically buying assets with higher expected returns. I mean, the US market, not, notwithstanding the fact that uh, it's not trading at uh, tech bubble valuations, it is relatively expensive. So compared to emerging markets, they're certainly attractive uh, from a 10-year expected returns perspective. Uh, you're buying, as I said, those drivers of global growth, uh, long-term productivity improvements, um, demographics, uh, a debt cycle in which emerging markets have ample room to uh, expand debt levels. Uh, at the moment, emerging markets, uh, in terms of households, only have debt levels of around 20% of GDP, whereas developed markets are around 70 to 80%. So there's ample room for um, that to expand. Uh, th th they offer higher real yields as well. So in, in an era where uh, monetary policy has become uh, exhausted in the developed world, they, they certainly allow the ability of central banks to, um, to ease monetary policy. And as, uh, as um, uh, Tim mentioned, those uh, emerging secular trends that uh, are certainly taking place and you're seeing a shift in the index away from the old economy to the new economy um, in, in areas of uh, IT, consumer, biotech, etc. So I think it's a great place to uh, have exposure to in a world where there's a lot of unknowns and uncertainty. I just want to do a quick polling question in terms of the allocation. So if we can get up the polling question around your allocation to EM within a global equities portfolio, just curious to sort of get a read on the room in terms of where, where you're at um, in terms of EM. Got a couple of questions we'll, we'll do actually. Let's switch to the next one around your allocation for the next 12 months. What do you expect? Increase or decrease or no change? And the last one, and we just touched on China, is around whether you have a standalone allocation to China, which is part of your, your broader EM position. Okay. 
All right, thank you. I guess, John, you know, go, going to you in terms of the EM perspective, I guess one of the other questions that has always been sort of raised about EM is you, know, you can get EM exposure through some of the very large cap stocks in, you know, in, in Europe or the US, um, and that by going to EM you start to run different challenges around governance, different challenges around sort of where they operate, you don't know, it's a bit more cloudy, um, transparency is not as clear. Um, but still seems that there's, there's quite a lot of interest in, in EM. I guess, you know, what, what can you capture differently from specifically EM stocks? You know, what does EM mean to you in terms of the types of... Well, I, I think you've summarized it pretty well for me. You know, essentially, you have a different uh, risk environment. You have different businesses uh, in terms of the manner in which they're run than sort of the traditional Anglo-American, if you will, sort of sphere of, of influence. Uh, I, I, you, you have more volatility, but generally you have more risk. Uh, and and the, the simple answer is hopefully more risk equals more reward, i.e. by taking on more risk over time, I will get a higher return, all else being equal. I mean, that's one of the arguments for why arguably some of the emerging markets are cheaper than others is because they've come with a whole lot of risk. Uh, Russia is probably one of the few markets in the world that, where you can still have Graham and Dodd valuations. You have stocks trading at four or five times earnings. Um, the reason is because they can be taken away from you overnight. We experienced that with, in our emerging market strategy when Mr. Putin decided that the last sort of independent oil and gas company was no longer independent, threw the president in jail. Uh, he agreed that he didn't really deserve that asset and um, handed it over to the state. So, and, and your recourse, so your ability to go do something about that is basically very, very limited, if not zero. So I think you, you certainly need to recognize going into an emerging market environment that it is a different risk profile and therefore one where uh, you can't have the same standards per se. But increasingly because the percentage of the people on the planet that live in these economies and really the, the, the beauty of, of uh, technology and globalization is that you can have competitive companies coming from anywhere. Uh, this gives you the ability by investing directly in markets like India, China, Brazil, Russia, South Africa, Korea, Taiwan, et cetera, you have access to world-class companies that are growing at, at uh, very attractive rates with valuations that are very attractive. So it's certainly a higher risk strategy, but hopefully one that leads to, over time, higher reward. So moving, moving to you, Tim, in terms of you know, classification of, of EM, you know, do you do classification around potentially the revenue? Where does the revenue come from as to be classified as EM? Or is it a listing? Is it the amount of revenue um, that the company receives to, to be EM? Like, is it coming from the EM space? Like, I know sometimes there was classification of DM companies with uh, DM listed organizations, but receive a lot of their money from, from EM that was classified as DM. How, how does that okay. work? Um, well, the classification would normally go to the country of listing. Um, liquidity is much higher in another market, then that might be seen as an exception. So there are exceptions to that rule. Nationality is one of those things which is always on the agenda, you know, in terms of trying to come up with a nationality rule given the dispersion of how people may list and where people might access that listing evolves through time. And we are constantly reevaluating re nationality as a particular criteria. Mm -hmm. Broader than that, though, I think it's, um, you know, th so 
this might be to the point before, you know, when China got reclassified as emerging markets, the eight shares and red chips got moved to China because that's, you know, that's what they're predominantly Chinese securities. Mm -hmm. So that's probably appropriate that where they are. But there's a lot of other, um, you know, you've got a lot of Israeli or Chinese stocks listed in New York. Um, mm -hmm. Whether they qualify as a U.S. stock or as a Chinese stock it depends upon the nature of their, both their business and in terms of listing and liquidity. All those things come together. But list prime listing is tends to be the most important. Mm -hmm. Paul, I guess, you know, from, from your perspective as well, as you start to look to EM, you know, how important is the idiosyncratic risk of sort of some of the companies? You know, when you think about mandates and allocating mandates to, to EM managers, you know, how, how do you think about sort of the companies ultimately that sit within that, that pool? Yeah, I mean, in terms of um, how we, I suppose, um, allocate to EM, I mean, going back to um, the, the question around sort of revenue exposure, the approach that we've taken Instead of looking at it from a market cap uh, perspective, mm -hmm. where typically you would be allocating around 11% at the moment um, as a percentage of equity, we've taken the approach of uh, looking at it from an economic exposure perspective. And when you do that, you change your mindset. I mean, obviously, everyone's allocation is really comes back to um, um, your own standpoint, your own viewpoint. But using economic exposure, emerging markets uh, generate around 30%. So, so once you look at the, the economic significance of it, it certainly changes your allocation. So we're, we're currently uh, substantially overweight. We're, as I said, we're more in line with um, economic exposures. Uh, we certainly expect that to in, uh, improve over time. We're certainly looking for uh, alpha drivers and those idiosyncratic factors, which I think is quite important in, in, in emerging markets to um, try and capitalize on those emerging consumer themes and trends. Uh, one of the ways that we've done that is through moving down the capitalization spectrum. So instead of being predominantly driven by uh, the large, uh, large cap um, component, we've moved down into the smaller cap com component where you can actually capitalize on those idiosyncratic factors that are more sort of domestically demand driven, um, picking up on those, uh, on, on those trends in terms of uh, IT, uh, consumer, um, local dynamics. So I think uh, it's important to look beyond just the, the dominance of the large cap uh, component um, and, and certainly move down uh, into, um, into that sort of smaller cap space. But one of the risks I think you, because I, I agree that the, to getting exposure to the market and the, some of the parts of the economy, you need to go down into that small cap space. Um, it's interesting that you often take on different risks in doing that though, because often like take India for example or Vietnam, they're very much family-owned businesses that tend to operate at that sort of space. And the governance structures within some of those businesses is very different to what you would anticipate in a more developed or some of the larger cap markets. So often you're taking on a risk which is not immediately obvious from the market as a whole. But they, they, they certainly tend to be a lot more shareholder friendly as well as compared to say the state-owned enterprises uh, where there's obviously different uh, interests and, and certainly some conflicts there. So, so I think from that perspective, you certainly have um, greater shareholder rights. Mm -hmm. So it's certainly, uh, certainly a positive. John, just going to you, you know, how, how do you think about that breakup from the large cap versus the, the smaller cap? Well, we're, uh, we're an all cap manager, so we just look for attractive stocks. I think the interesting thing about the EM markets is that 
there's uh, a, you know a very there's a relatively small number of very big companies, and then there's a whole lot of in the middle, but without a lot of liquidity. And one of the biggest problems I think that the allocators in the room face is finding fund managers who have capacity. And the problem in EM is you just if you're managing more than 10 to 12, 15 billion dollars, specifically in EM, your ability to invest in the smaller companies is severely curtailed. You either have to own a large chunk of them or you have to own a large number of them. And, and ultimately, over time, I think that's you know, one of the real challenges in our industry is that you know, size actually is the enemy of return. You can't actually get into the more interesting things if you are too big of a fund manager. So, you know, for example, if we think we've got capacity of about $5 billion. We're about 40% of the way there. Um, but after that, we just couldn't own the stocks that we would want to own and be able to get out in a timely manner if, if we decided we needed to. And that's one of the biggest difficulties in constructing emerging market benchmarks is foreign ownership limits or just that capacity. If you look at the way emerging markets were defined originally, it was about economics. You know, where are they in the evolution of their capital markets and economics? Today, the way emerging markets are assessed are on accessibility. Therefore, it has to meet, meet certain accessibility thresholds in order to do that. So there are liquidity constraints put on stocks which might qualify for an index on what capacity there is within the stocks yeah. to actually take on that international ownership. So it, it, it's, a, it's a strange dilemma that you're facing in, in that sense. And one of the things that we try and do is encourage markets to think about how they um, embrace international share ownership in their marketplace. What can they do to facilitate it? If they can't facilitate direct um, you know, equity acquisition, uh, you know, NVDRs like you've got in Thailand or, or other mechanisms whereby you can get the economic exposure. You may not get the voting rights, which to some will be very important, but you might get the economic and dividends out of it. So there are other ways of which to address that. All right, this is a, a good time to open up. Oh, is there questions? Table two. Yeah, just you left your light on. Okay. <laughs> <laughs>